Hello and welcome to episode three of Sheep Thrills. My name is Emily Lamb and this is the Things That Annoyed Me in Politics This Week episode. And there sure is a lot of it. So in this episode, we are going to unfortunately talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene um, and some of the broader implications of her actions. Uh, We're also going to talk about bipartisanship and what that really means in 2021. Uh, And then we're also going to talk about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the experiences that she shared this week. Uh, And then we're also going to do some general updates and short stories. So with all that being said, let's get right into it. Um, The first thing that I want to talk about today um, is Marjorie Taylor Greene. And I went back and forth on whether or not I really wanted to talk about her this week. Um, because, you know, like a lot of people have been saying, including the press secretary for the Biden administration, you know, if we continue to talk about her and promote her, we kind of continue to give a platform to all of her really, really destructive viewpoints. Um, and when we continue to talk about destructive conspiracy theories, we actually give them more power and give them more fuel. However, I think that it's really important to talk about where she fits into the current kind of Republican administration, or rather kind of within the Republican establishment, um, and kind of to see to see whether or not the Republican establishment will stand up to like the really extreme viewpoints that she represents, uh, kind of like the Trumpian uh, viewpoints that she is kind of continuing to bring into the new administration, despite the fact that Donald Trump is no longer in office. So just to go back a little bit, in case you don't know who Marjorie Taylor Greene is, she is a freshman congresswoman from Georgia. Uh, she, When she was elected, it was kind of a big deal. Um, she has said publicly that she believes in the QAnon conspiracy theories um, and generally is just a very pro-gun Um, anti-government. She's kind of prides herself on being kind of an inside outsider. And she's only really causing more chaos since becoming an official member of Congress. Um, And something that I'm sure I mentioned before, but I think is important to note, she actually came out against the results of the Georgia general election. Um, And when they were certifying the Electoral College um, in Congress, she spoke out against it. Um, Meanwhile, As I just said, she's a freshman congresswoman from Georgia, so if she was saying that the results of the presidential election um, in Georgia weren't valid, then her own election also isn't valid, which I'm not sure why other people aren't talking about this, because it's all the same ballot. Um, So if you're saying that the presidential election was rigged, but your own election wasn't rigged, I'm not quite sure how that works out in her own brain, but that's just... uh, kind of gives you an idea of where she stands on the political spectrum. So what's happening literally right now, as I'm recording this, um, is Marjorie Taylor Greene is actually, um, they're they're kind of putting her fate up for a vote in Congress in the full House. um, And they're trying to, the Democrats at least, are trying to get her removed from her committee assignments. Something that again, I find very interesting, is that the one committee that she's been assigned to is the Education and Labor Committee. And I've said this before as well, but uh, my congresswoman from home is also on the Education and Labor Committee, and she's a Democrat, um, Mikey Sherrill. And those two women could not be more set aside from each other in terms of, you know, how they 
present themselves to the world. Uh, and it's just a very interesting dichotomy there. Um, but anyway, so as this vote is happening, if it goes through effectively, it'll kind of be a symbol from the entire House that they are not in support of Marjorie Taylor Greene, even though the Republican Party met um, in a closed door meeting yesterday, and they said that they are not going to be taking any actions on behalf of the Republican Party to censure her uh, in any way, which is really interesting because they're just kind of putting up with her behavior, um, even though I don't know how many of those people actually support her. Um, And of course, we'll never know exactly what got said in that closed door meeting and if there was a specific vote, but I'm sure that we'll be getting a lot more information about that whole process um, as we get farther away from it. But I do think that it's interesting that they had this closed door meeting, they talked about censuring her in some way, and then they ended up not doing it. Um, And of course, the House Minority Leader is Kevin McCarthy. And when he came out and made the statement saying that they were not going to formally censure her in any way, um, Nancy Pelosi, who's the Speaker of the House, um, made a statement basically saying, you should have done something and now we're going to have to take it into the, the, the full House. Um, and, you know, in case you've never read a politician's statement before, which, you know, I don't know if you have, um, but usually when they list a name, they put in parentheses after their party and their state. So for Nancy Pelosi, it would be DCA because Democrat from California. Uh, and when she released the statement, she put Kevin McCarthy QCA as in QAnon California, which is really, really interesting Um, And I think a great move because, um, you know, QAnon conspiracy theories are broadly seen as bad. There's a small group of people that um, believe in it, but it's a very radical, radical viewpoint. Um, And, you know, it's the same kind They're Now they're trying to do the same kind of thing that the Republican establishment did with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez where they tied every single Democrat to AOC, regardless of their place on the political spectrum. So again, going back to my congresswoman, um, Mikey Sherrill is a very moderate blue dog Democrat. And in every single attack mailer that was sent out during the 2020 general election, there was a picture of AOC on the mailer. For no reason other than, oh, well, I'm a moderate Republican and I think that AOC's viewpoints are too drastic. So if I see AOC associated with Mikey Sherrill, then I'm not going to vote for her. Even though we all know that voters have much better critical thinking skills than that, it's just a really interesting tactic that Republicans have decided to use over the past two years and they're definitely not going to stop now. Um, But the idea of associating every single Republican with Marjorie Taylor Greene regardless of how extreme they are, uh, I think is a great branding, great like promotional idea. And again, this is purely from a, uh, like a PR perspective, not a political perspective, but the idea that they're going to um, associate every single Republican with this extreme viewpoint really is going to, I think, again, because I think voters have better critical thinking skills in this, but it will cause the media and will cause voters to see this association between the individual and the party and see that there's this party that's uplifting this extremely destructive radical viewpoint. Um, And so I think that it will have interesting long-term effects on the state of the party. It's interesting 
in the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene is currently at the forefront of the party, and it's also interesting that she got elected in the first place at all. Um, so first of all, the fact that she's at the front of the Republican Party gave the establishment Republicans so much chance to move away from kind of the radical Trump side of the party. You know, if they had said, we don't agree with her, we don't like her, she's not a real Republican, um, they could have tried to move away from the stigma that they got from throughout the Trump presidency. And it's so interesting that they um, are refusing to move away from Trump. Um, you know, it was ex- his entire presidency was extremely toxic. It cost it caused so much division, and obviously the division existed before. It will exist after. Um, but I think that the the divisions were much more extreme because of actions taken by the Trump administration. Um, and if the Republican Party really wanted to move past that and move forwards. And if they, you know, I'm going to talk about this later, but if they truly cared about bipartisanship, then they would move away from these extremely radical viewpoints. And again, I think, you know, people are trying to associate, oh, well, who's the left version of Marjorie Taylor Greene? There is no left version of Marjorie Taylor Greene because Marjorie Taylor Greene is insane, for lack of better words. She is a conspiracy theorist. She is you know, she she's preying on the downfall of real people. You know, there's all these videos and posts coming out about her, you know, threatening, uh, threatening Democrats and saying that she's going to put a bullet in their heads. Um, and it's really scary. And I've used this word a lot, even this shortened the episode, but it's destructive. It is uh, she is from a system that wants the entire political system to fall apart. And, you know, you can have disagreements about our electoral and our governmental system in America. It's not a perfect system. There are certainly weaknesses and there are certainly things that need to be addressed. But to burn it all down is not is not a good thing to do. And I really feel that strongly. And, you know, I was while I was doing some research with this episode, I was reading about all of her conspiracy theories. And there's just things that are ridiculous and insane, like the fact that Jews have a space laser that caused the wildfires in California. Like, not only is that blatantly anti-Semitic, it's also just fully insane. Like, people who believe things like that don't have, I don't know, I just feel like they're, they're missing some, like, critical thinking skills that they should have been learning in, you know, school. Um, and... The other thing that's been in the news a lot recently is her denial of various school shootings um, and her the words that she's used about school shooting survivors is so, again, so despicable. Like to say that David Hogg is a plant and he is getting paid by Soros um, to like, you know, steal everyone's guns is insane. So many people died, uh, and especially the fact that all of these statements are coming out. Now, we're nearing the third anniversary of the Parkland shooting um, this Valentine's Day. It's it's really disappointing that there are people who have a national platform um, are continuing to perpetrate lies um, about things that are important to so many people. So that kind of goes on to my next like major point, which is how did she get elected? Um, and there are so many other freshman 
Congress people that are like just as bad as her, uh, one being Lauren Boebert, uh, who is a freshman Congress congresswoman from Colorado. And she, uh, you might remember a couple months ago when she got elected, she had this whole ad about how you're not allowed to have guns in Washington, D.C., but she's going to keep her gun on the House floor. And she also, um, during the insurrection at the Capitol, um, basically, even though the sergeant at arms told everybody, don't tweet, don't tell anybody your location, like this needs to be secure, she was basically live tweeting the entire situation. Um, and when things were, when people were trying to get control over the situation, she said, oh, well, the, the speaker just was removed from the house chamber or we are getting removed to um, secure location. So she was like actively subverting attempts to make the whole situation safe again. The point is not about her today. The point is about people like her. Um, the fact that there's a whole slew of freshman Congress people who support these really horrible mentality and this really like Trumpian, dark conspiracy theorist um, viewpoints. And the fact that they got elected in the first place is scary. Um, and the fact that the the Democrats lost a good chunk of their um, margin in the House. So now it's a whole lot closer between Democratic control and Republican control. Um, and the the thing that's additionally scary um, is, of course, members of the House of Representatives are up for re-election every two years, which is a really short amount of time. Um, and so it basically means that the Democrats have had to get going on messaging um, to get rid of these people really soon. Um, and it's really, you know, there's, there's elected officials like this who it's like almost impossible to effectively campaign against. And when I was thinking about these people, I was thinking about like the, the, the saying that we used in school and it was, I'm rubber, you're glue, whatever you say bounces off of me and sticks to you. Like that is truly who these Congress people are. Nothing, no criticism, Nothing that anybody says will ever be able to stick to them because they're so good for some reason at turning it around and twisting it so that you look like the bad person. So it's going to be, and they also, you know, they peddle in misinformation. Their entire brand is um, selling lies and conspiracy theories. Um, so it's going to be very, you know, there's already been several people who have declared that they're running against um, these people in 2022. But it'll be really interesting to see how Democratic messaging and how the specific candidates messaging are able to cut through all of the nonsense and kind of get to the nitty gritty of I'm a better candidate because I believe in the truth versus, uh, you know, this my opposition who believes in lies. Um, and I think that, you know, the fact that they're the, that these people are at the front of the Republican Party right now. Um, in a way, in an, in an extreme way that like, you know, people will fight with me and say, oh, well, AOC did the exact same thing when she was in her first year. I don't, I think that people focused on AOC a lot, but I don't think that she was at the forefront of the Democratic Party in the same way um, as these, as these Congress people. And I just think that um, if the entire Republican Party decides we're not going to support these people anymore, they'll be able to be more effective in the long run versus what they're doing now, which is kind of tiptoeing around them. Um, and I think what that indicates is that 
even though Trump is gone, the seeds that he sowed in the American governmental system are going to remain around a whole lot longer. Because I think that as opposed to the Republican Party being remade in more of a moderate way, the Republican Party is going to be remade in a really extreme and grotesque way. And I don't personally want that to happen. You know, I don't, I will never be a Republican no matter what happens to the Republican Party. Um, But there are certain values that Republicans hold that, like, I understand why they hold them. I don't agree with them, but I understand, you know, an argument for being fiscally conservative. Again, I don't agree with it in any way, but I, I, I understand the concept. I understand why people who are fiscally conservative decide to side with the Republican Party. That's fine. Um, but this true destruction of the Republican Party and what it stands for, I don't think is good for anyone. Um, and I really feel like even if, if the Republican Party splits into two and there's the Patriot Party and the Republican Party, I don't think that will help anyone with anything. I think that the, the purpose of government ultimately is to help people. And I think that we get a lot of, when we get people in Congress like Marjorie Taylor Greene, we get people who do not actually care about the people no matter what she says. She cares about being seen and being heard. Um, and I don't, I, I think that she really, really, really does not actually have people's best interests at heart. And I think that's a bad thing. Um, so I hope that the Republican Party moves away from her. However, it doesn't seem like that's going to be the take. Uh, that's going to be the case. Excuse me. The Liz Cheney story, I think, is particularly indicative of that. Um, so Liz Cheney is the congresswoman from Wyoming, and she is the um, House Republican Conference Chair, which is the third highest position in House Republican leadership. Um, and something significant is that she has spoken out against Trump. She's spoken out against some of these really radical Republicans. Um, and people have specifically, uh, members of the Republican Party in the House have gone completely insane. Um, and so again, in this closed door meeting that the House had, or the Republicans had yesterday, um, they did an anonymous ballot to remove Liz Cheney from her position. And again, so this anonymous ballot meant that nobody knew who anyone else voted for. And it ended up being 145 to not remove her to 61 to remove her. And going into that meeting, many Republicans thought that they had the votes to remove her. And 145 to 61, it's not a close margin at all. Um, And I think that's so interesting. Um, And somebody brought up on, on Twitter that I saw, I'm not sure who it was, but they said, why um, can't impeachment be a anonymous ballot? Because you can see that these Republicans, even though they might be expressing something else online or on the House floor, internally, they are against what's happening to the Republican Party for good reason, because the Republican Party is turning into a joke, like a national embarrassment. And it's so interesting that the values of a former president have such an extreme chokehold over an entire party. Uh, like, there's so many people who will just never speak out against a person who no longer has any power, any authority. And again, kind of going back to a previous point, it's just so interesting how indicative this whole situation is of the fact that Trump was a 
he was a symptom of the of a problem rather than the cause of it um and the cause i think is you know rabid nationalism and white supremacy um that we've been seeing build in america for the past several decades um and it's that that kind of like white supremacy and nationalism hasn't been so apparent before donald trump but we can see that this again the seeds that he sowed are going to remain in place and He's created such fear within the party that even though 145 Republicans don't want to um, speak out against kind of more moderate establishment Democrats, they won't do it publicly. They're afraid to. Um, and, you know, we it's just it's frustrating to me that they're so afraid um, to speak out. But I understand, no, never mind. I was going to say that I understand why they do it, but I don't. Because again, government and being in government isn't supposed to be about holding and maintaining power as hard as they can. The point is to help people. And if you're going to be such a coward that you're unable to speak out to actually help people, then you should give up your power because you're not fit to have it. And I really, I feel that within my, I, I feel that strongly. Um... So midterms will be interesting in two years. Um, and someone someone posted, there's a, a an Instagram page called Overheard DC. Uh, and someone posted on there um, a quote that said that there are more consequences on The Bachelor, the television show, than on Capitol Hill. And that really is true. Uh, if you're racist or you're toxic or you're manipulative on The Bachelor, you get sent home. But if you are racist, toxic, and manipulative on Capitol Hill, you get a standing ovation from the Republican Party on the House floor. That is something that actually happened to Marjorie Taylor Greene last night. Um, so that's that's where I'm going to leave it there uh, with Marjorie Taylor Greene and with the state of the Republican Party. Um, and of course, everything is going to continue to develop um, over the next couple weeks, but I really hope that after the House is done with this ballot tonight, um, they will have decided to remove Marjorie Taylor Greene from her committees and, you know, strip her from any power that she might be able to wield until somebody can primary her from the center um, in the general election and then ultimately lose a seat to a Democrat in 2022. So anyway, let's just hope that that uh, works out that way. Okay, um, so the next thing that I'm going to talk about is bipartisanship um, within the Senate. And I just want to apologize now. Um, if this episode kind of sounds like I'm ranting a lot, it's because I am. Again, this episode is just all things that really annoyed me in politics this week. Um, and a whole lot of things really annoyed me. So with that being said, I'm just going to jump back into it. So um, as we know, the Senate is 50-50 with the tie-breaking vote by Kamala Harris, who is, of course, a Democrat, which in essence means that the Democrats hold the majorities, which is why Chuck Schumer um, is designated as the majority leader and Mitch McConnell is designated as the minority leader. So um, despite the fact that the Senate was all sworn in around three weeks ago, they haven't had a power sharing resolution yet within the Senate, um, and that just got resolved yesterday. Um, and what it basically determines is that the Democrats are in charge of all of the committees, um, which means that we officially have budget chairman Bernie Sanders, uh, which if you'll remember uh, on the campaign trail, Lindsey Graham 
said, you know, oh, if we don't win this election, guess who's going to be budget chairman? Bernie Sanders. And, you know, promises made, promises kept. Um, But the point of that story is that the Democrats are now in charge of all the committees. um, So they have the power to um, control what bills are are seen on the floor um, and the, the general actions of the committees. It's interesting that it took so long, um, and because the system that came out wasn't particularly um, unique, like it wasn't like there was anything in it that was caused for uh, either like alarm or celebration on either side. Um, the interesting thing with that, however, is that we knew that there were already negative effects that were happening because the power sharing agreement wasn't happening. Um, so up until this point, the Republicans were still officially in charge of all of the committees. So in the Judiciary Committee, where Lindsey Graham is the was the chair, and now he's the ranking member, um, they were trying to um, pull up Merrick Garland, who is the uh, nominee for Attorney General, to get confirmed by the Judiciary, uh, so that he could be then sent to the larger Senate for approval. Um, but Lindsey Graham said that he would not call Merrick Garland up to schedule this um, confirmation hearing um, because he claimed that they needed more time to kind of coordinate different things for the impeachment trial, which are happening next week. Um, So it's interesting that there was all of this, there was, you know, potential drama kind of behind the scenes uh, with the Republican former chairs of the committees holding up Democratic um, policy initiatives, uh, even in just the confirmation of cabinet members. Um, but here we are, we have this power sharing agreement. Um, it'll be interesting to see how it all works out in practice. Um, especially this 50, 50 majority is extremely thin. Um, and with senators like Joe Manchin just being himself and kind of playing, playing the field, um, it'll be interesting to see how that ends up working out in the long run uh, and whether Democrats are actually able to get through various policy initiatives that they want to get through or whether they're going to be stopped by, you know, either, you know, the filibuster or other roadblocks, including potentially not being able to keep their entire caucus together. So that's going to be interesting with that. But I, throughout this entire process, the everyone's been talking about bipartisanship and how we need to support bipartisanship in government. Um, and there's been a couple articles that have been circulating around over the past couple days that everyone has a take on. So I'm going to give my own take. Um, and my thought about bipartisanship in government, I think that coalition building is a good thing. What I'll say, this is my my extremely lukewarm take that I thought at one point was a hot take, but it's not. I think that the two-party system is extremely bad, um, and it only serves to increase divisions, and uh, it's just not an effective way to govern. I'm far more in favor of like a par- parliamentary system where you actually have to coalition build in order to govern, but... uh, Maybe I'll get into that in a future episode and I'll do a longer segment on my thoughts about the two-party system. Um, But what it seems to me in terms of bipartisanship is that it's only viewed as bipartisanship when the Democrats are the ones giving things up. You know, we can't be bipartisan bipartisan with the Democrats getting everything they want and the Republicans giving something up. And I think that this was even true 
you know, a couple weeks ago when we had a Republican president and a Republican Senate, that bipartisanship could only happen when the Republicans get everything they want and the Democrats give something up. And it's never bipartisan if the Democrats get everything they want and the Republicans have to give something up. And I think that's extremely destructive. I think that it's an extremely bad way to think about bipartisanship. When the whole point of bipartisanship is, uh, you know, negotiation and everyone gives something up for the greater good. And that's not, that's not what's happening in the Senate or in Congress today. Uh, we're really expecting one party to give everything up in order to, in order to get anything done at all in government. Uh, and I think that's just not a good way to view um, government in America today. Um, we do need to coalition build. We do need to work across the aisle. And I know that that is a hot take um, to some people who think that we should just try to govern with one party. I don't think that that's a good thing. I think that a free market of ideas is a good thing. Again, like I said in the last segment, um, freedom of ideas and like fiscal conservatism and like whatever, certain Republican values, I understand. And I think that introducing those ideas into a debate are a good thing because they make everybody better in the long run because they make, you know, they make Democrats have to think about their arguments and make their um, legislation better and stronger and, and live up to the um, criticism from the right. And if they can hold against criticism, then it's going to be better legislation. And I really think that strongly. At this point, it kind of is what it is. Um, and the important thing is that these norms of bipartisanship are not institutional, but they're rather they're just societal norms um, that we hold on to because we're afraid to let go of them in favor for something else, um, something that we were talking about in one of my philosophy classes today. Um, but, you know, if they were institutional, they'd be a lot harder to get rid of. But they're not. They're just... There are things that we hold on to because we're afraid to get rid of it. But I think that, and I don't think we're going to get rid of it anytime soon because um, I think that generally people aren't as frustrated about the state of the two-party system and about bipartisanship in America um, as people who are, you know, like invested in politics are. But I do think that it's something that's going to have to happen in the future in order for government to be effective in any way whatsoever. Um, So here's hoping that in a couple of years we kind of have a real sit-down conversation about democracy and what it means in a new generation. So that's kind of all I wanted to say on that. Um, But again, I say this at the end of every segment, but of course politics changes every single day. Um, so I'm sure that the relationships between the parties will continue to develop and evolve um, over the next couple weeks, uh, especially as this power sharing agreement kind of takes place and the Congress really begins to start the new legislative session. Uh, and we'll see. We'll see how it all goes. I'm hopeful, but uh, not really. <laughs> so now I'm going to talk about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and what she revealed um, this past week on Instagram. Um, so I'm just going to put this right here, um, just kind of a trigger warning for sexual assault, kind of a discussion of sexual assault. Um, so if that's not something you want to listen to, uh, it's only a small segment of the, the, the rest of the show, but I would just not recommend listening. Um, so 
basically what happened, um, so AOC went live on Instagram uh, a couple days ago to talk about the riot, talk about what happened at the Capitol complex a few weeks ago. Um, And what she described was, you know, a lot scarier than I think uh, a lot of us assumed. Um, And we knew that more information was going to come out and it was going to continue to be really scary as we found out exactly what happened. Um, But I don't think we really knew how terrifying the entire ordeal was. Um, And she kind of told the story about how she was in her office at the Rayburn building and and you know the office got evacuated and she hid in her the bathroom in her office um and that she was literally fearing for her life um and she kind of she spoke about the fact that she was a survivor of sexual assault and so this entire experience kind of brought up a lot of trauma for her um and the entire ordeal again was extremely traumatic extremely terrifying um and people have spoken a lot of congress people have spoken about their their experiences um during the riot but i think that the way that aoc spoke about it was extremely authentic and extremely genuine um and it really you know it showed human emotion um that these congress people were experiencing so the actual um instagram live itself was obviously it was heart-wrenching but it was not extremely controversial. Um, and what happened afterwards is that the Republicans just went crazy and they tried to attack AOC for lying about how much danger she was actually in um, and just generally discrediting everything that she said. And so specifically, Nancy Mace, who is another freshman congresswoman, was actively trying to discredit AOC just and act like literally spreading real lies, like verifiable lies. So she basically said on Twitter that AOC was lying about how much danger she was in, um, and the fact that there, you know, there weren't any insurrectionists on their floor, um, and just basically saying that AOC was not being authentic. However, every single claim that she made was like verifi- verifiably false. Um, and she even, like, Nancy Mace spoke to reporters after, um, after the riot, and she said, and I'm reading directly from this article here, it says, quote, Mace said she barricaded herself inside her D.C. office during the attack, fearing that Trump supporters she had seen staying at her hotel might target her after she voted to certify the electoral votes. Mace said she decided to sleep in her office that night. So the fact that Nancy Mace went on Fox News and tried to downplay and simply lie about uh, and misinterpret what AOC was saying about her experiences when she was just as scared um, is just really, really upsetting and really frustrating. And there's not even a way that I can kind of put that into a more like critical analysis um, because she's you know, people have said she's literally lying for Fox News clicks. Um, and so even though you know, Nancy Mace isn't in the same category of freshman Republican Congress people as Lauren Boebert or Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, it's been three weeks and she's already moving so far to the right that the only way that she can see to keep relevant um, and again, keep power is to attack AOC. And that's really frustrating. Um, and then the other um, really frustrating lie that's been going on is that people have been saying, oh, well, AOC wasn't even in the Capitol complex during the attack. And 
the Capitol complex, if you've never been to Washington, D.C. or you don't know, there's the actual Capitol building, which is where the House and the Senate chambers are, um, and some offices. But the vast majority of offices are in, like, external buildings that are a little bit set apart from the actual, like, Capitol dome. Um, And if you'll remember, like, if you're watching the news that day, the first bombs and the first um, groups of people that got evacuated were people in those office buildings, not the actual Capitol system. So they got first into the um, office buildings or there was the first attack on the office buildings and then there's the actual attack and the actual invasion of the Capitol dome. So th- there was danger in the the entire Capitol complex and the fact that people, you know, again, like I've said a million times, the the, the new Republican Party preys on misinformation and disinformation. And I just think that's so destructive and so bad. Um, and I wish that Republicans could come up with another argument other than AOC bad. Because that's not constructive. That's not good debate. Let AOC talk to her audience. Let AOC express herself and her policy initiatives. And debate on policy. Don't debate on you know, lies and personal attacks. And don't just say AOC's name so that you can get into the news. It's just not, it's not what politics should be about. And I'm really frustrated about how dysfunctional politics is because of that. Because name dropping is the way that you can get on the front page of Fox News. And to get onto the front page of Fox News is to maintain authority and power so you can get reelected in two years. I just, I don't think that that's uh, constructive. And then the other really significant component of this um, is that AOC was extremely vulnerable on this Instagram Live. And she kind of told the story about how she is a survivor of sexual assault. And many people, many, many people have been extremely negative about that and, you know, trying to lie, trying to, you know, just say what they think about AOC's experiences with sexual assault and saying that they weren't big or they weren't important enough for her to talk about or express. And, you know, you see this a lot when someone comes out and they express, uh, especially celebrities, and they come out and they express that they are survivors of sexual assault or, you know, any kind. And, you know, AOC is not going to see all of the individual posts that are minimizing her trauma, but your friends and your colleagues and your coworkers who have also experienced sexual assault will. And I just think that the online discourse around this entire situation has been just completely horrible. And there's a lot of bravery involved in um, coming out and speaking about trauma that you've experienced and then to turn around and see how that's been minimized and trodden upon on the internet just makes it so much harder for, you know, quote-unquote regular people to turn around and tell their stories, even to their, not even online, but even to their close circle of of friends or their family. So that's just kind of my analysis on that situation. Um, And even though, you know, again, AOC is not listening to this show, but if she is and she ever needs to, to rant call me up, we can chat, um, because I know how frustrating this entire experience must have been for her, um, because it's just extreme, it's, it's manipulative, and it's gaslighting, and it really must be extremely traumatic, um, especially because, you know, she's a main target for people who did break into the, the Capitol, because she's such a public figure, um, 
And it's been expressed on the internet all over the place. The article that uh, was written about her a couple months ago, when she was talking about, you know, thinking about not running for re-election in 2020 because of all the death threats she's received. So to minimize the trauma that she experienced during that situation is just so extremely short-sighted. But yeah, that's my take on that. All right, moving on. um, Some other important updates and stories the impeachment trial is next week. Next week, ep- next week's episode is going to be all about the impeachment trial and what we've seen. Um, but there have been some fun updates. So, first of all, basically all of Trump's lawyers quit this week, which is interesting. Uh, and apparently they quit because Trump wanted his entire defense to be around the, you know, as they've been calling the big lie that the uh, election was stolen from him. And... So they basically had to rebuild the entire legal team, which is very interesting, you know, again, a week out from the election. Um, And a little bit of a, you know, a public interest story for the D.C. community uh, is that there's a GW law school professor who um, declined the opportunity to represent Trump at the impeachment trial, which I think is very interesting. Um, But again, they're they're rebuilding that legal team. So it's not like he's not going to be represented. There's plenty of people who are chomping at the bit um, to have that kind of like high profile um, exposure, um, despite the fact that they're going to be tied to Donald Trump for the rest of their lives. But, you know, do what you do and it'll be, you know, you'll be on national television. So uh, the other kind of interesting update around that, uh, around the impeachment, is that Representative Jamie Raskin has officially requested that Trump come and speak um, on the record under oath um, during the Senate trial. So Jamie Raskin is a member of the impeachment team from the House. Um, so he's now kind of officially been subpoenaed. Um, and I don't really know what's going to happen with that. Um, obviously, he was going to be subpoenaed. Um but I don't like I, I don't know if you can just reject the subpoena and not come to the impeachment trial or whether he'll come and he'll plead the fifth to every single um, question. But regardless, it will be interesting to see uh, how that works. And I was thinking about it. You know, I have not heard Donald Trump's voice in three weeks and it's been excellent. I feel so at peace. Um, and I'm, you know, despite the fact that I know that he should come and he should have to testify to the entire Senate and to the American people about his role in what happened on January 6th. I really don't want to hear his voice ever again, but maybe that's a petty thing and I should just move on for myself, but here we are. Of course, also, just doing some more research on on what the process would be here, and Trump has already rejected um, the impeachment manager's request for testimony at the impeachment trial, um, which means that Donald Trump's word is going to be filtered through his lawyers, um, and it'll be interesting to see what they come up with um, and whether they will try to follow his strategy of kind of claiming that the election was stolen from him um, and he did nothing wrong, or, or whether they will kind of be, try to be a little bit more authentic. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, it'll be interesting, and it'll be chaotic, um, as everything is in American politics these days. So the other story that I want to talk about, so actually we're going to do, we're going to talk about a foreign policy story, which I don't do all that often because I am not a foreign policy buff. I am, it's just not my main thing. But one foreign policy story that I've been interested in for a while um, is the civil war in Yemen. Um, and it's basically a proxy war 
uh, that's happening between a few different nations. It's extremely, extremely bad. Um, I mean, Yemen is on the verge of no longer being a country um, because of the violence that's happening there. And an extreme number of people, um, especially children, are living without proper nutrition um, and without housing. Um, and just generally, the whole situation is very broken and very bad. Um, and it's been kind of a foreign policy. It's, I would say it's akin to what was happening in Syria a couple years ago. Of course, that's still happening, but kind of to a lesser extent. Um, the situation in Yemen is extremely dire. Um, but President Biden uh, announced that there will be, um, there's going to be an announcement about the end of American support for offensive operations in Yemen, which basically means, as I said, it's basically a proxy war that's happening right now in Yemen, which basically means that a bunch of larger nations are using different forces in Yemen as pawns to um, get what they want in those like kind of smaller foreign countries. Um, and so pulling out support for offensive operations is basically saying that we're going to try to minimize potential losses additional potential losses in Yemen and, you know, hopefully end as, you know, Chris Murphy, who's a senator from from Connecticut, uh, posted, you know, we want to end our complicity in this savage humanitarian nightmare in Yemen. And that's really what it is. It is an absolute disaster. Um, And the fact that America is involved at all, despite the fact that they're not involved, you know, externally, uh, the fact that we've been involved in moving any pawns around internally is extremely upsetting to me. Um, but I am excited um, in this foreign policy announcement um, that has come out because I do I do think that if we focus more on a humanitarian foreign policy versus a violent foreign policy, things will just be more constructive moving forwards, um, and we'll be able to have a better place on the world stage. And again, as I've said, I'm not a foreign policy buff. Um, I'm not an expert in anything foreign policy related, especially kind of military things. Um, However, I have done a lot of research on the civil war in Yemen. um, And I do know that this is a good action to take, both to make America safer and to Re, you know, increase some more stability to that region of the world. So, now that we've got all that serious ranting out of the way, I am adding a new segment to the show this week, which I am calling, I don't really have a name for it yet, but it's just going to be the craziest politics story that I've seen that week. So this week, we are going to talk about former Vice President Mike Pence and the fact that he is currently homeless in Indiana. So before moving into um, the vice presidential mansion in DC, he was living in the governor mansion in Indiana since he moved right from one to the other. And so he hasn't had it and he sold his house in Indiana after he um, moved out of, after he moved into the, the governor mansion. So he's been homeless in Indiana, like couch surfing on different, like, prominent Indiana Republicans' couches for the past several weeks. And I'm not sure if that's still the situation or whether he's found permanent housing, but my sister sent me that story, and I was so taken aback by the whole thing. 
because it's obviously unfortunate that he doesn't have a house. Um, you know, but it's a different situation than people experiencing, like, true homelessness. Um, but he just, he's just hanging out. He's, he's couch surfing with, with other Republicans. Um, and I just, I don't know how he managed to do that. Like, whether he had a house deal and it fell through at the last minute and then that's why he was, was couch surfing. Or he really, really, really thought that they were going to get four more years in the White House and he wouldn't have to look for a house for another four years. But then again, he has never expressed that he thought that the election was stolen. So he would have had the time between November and January to find a new house, even if he um, thought that the, like, the election was going to work out in his favor. He didn't think that after, you know, whatever it was, November 15th or whatnot. So I just truly don't know what's going on in his brain in that situation. Um, But I hope that he finds somewhere to live in Indiana. If not, he could always, I don't know, move back to D.C. or come to some other state uh, and live there. But yeah, that's just my crazy political story for the week that I wanted to talk about. Um, Because it really made me laugh and it really confused me to no end as to why he didn't have a house lined up for when he moved out of D.C. But here we are, and, you know, Mike Pence is not a good person, and I do not like him, but at the same time, wish him well. Wish him well. All right, and with that, that's it from me. That's the end of episode three of Sheep Thrills. Um, Thank you so much again for listening. I really appreciate all of your support. Uh, Wear a mask, and I will see you next week. Bye.